Hi guys, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by Amy Hollenkamp, R to the D. Hello. And we're going to talk about... <laughs> I love that because we've been talking about like matching my energy. I feel like that was a really good effort to match the energy. I want to, I don't want that to go unnoticed or Thank unappreciated. You. Well, um, I think sometimes I usually just like really go the opposite direction of your energy. Like, oh, I can't dude. match that high, you know, but I try to add a little bit of flair this time. So I'm glad you noticed that. I did. I did. I wanted to just stop dead in my tracks and acknowledge that. Um, <laughs> I completely forgot the rest of my intro other than today we're going to be talking about stress chemistry. And that is to say all of the hormones and neurotransmitters and the, the chemical soup that happens in your body when you are stressed. And of course, how it relates to the gut and gut function. So at, per my usual, I will kick it to you first and put you on the spot, Amy. Um, stress, kind of a big deal for IBS. Yay. It, it certainly is. And I know that we've talked about this mm-hmm. in the past what you can do for stress and how to manage stress just broadly. And I do think that like, from what I've seen just in the digestive space, people are talking about stress and stress hormones and, and how uh, the stress response plays into digestion. I mean, if your body is stressed and you have a certain chemistry going on, and we're going to talk about the the chemistry behind the stress response. But if, if you have that stress response happening, there's just a lot of, there's like a cascade of stopping digestion, essentially. It's like really your body's saying, you know, we'd rather focus on other tasks than digestion. Um, so I think it is a a big factor in the mix. I think sometimes what I've seen is that like people focus just on the hormones or just on the gut because they think, okay, if I get the gut in place, the hormones will regulate or if I get the hormones in place, the gut will get better. And I think usually my approach is generally like, okay, we have to support both pieces in order for them to both improve. But yeah, I think generally, like from the the gut health space, there is a recognition of like things like cortisol balance being important. I think typically I see it somewhat addressed in protocols that I've seen working with clients who have worked with other practitioners. But I think there is a lot of areas, especially diet wise, where things get a little bit awry, where I think, again, like. They, they might be taking an adaptogen or something, but their diet yeah. is stressing them out and potentially creating more yeah. of a stress response. Um, I think in general, like I, we talked about in the stress episode, doing things like stress management are always yeah. important too. But yeah, I think that's kind of generally um, how I'd start this, this show off. Is Again, it's like super important to both think of like, how the gut affects stress and, you know, addressing the gut piece of it, but also addressing it from the stress response side of things and making sure you're doing things that are going to help keep that balanced as well. Yeah. If that makes well, sense. I think like allowing one way to think of it is if you bring some awareness to the hormones and the chemistry of stress, I think, A, it can kind of help demonstrate to people that, oh, stress actually is a big deal. 
right? Like, because a lot of people, yeah. frankly, are in denial. And we all have yeah. varying degrees of, like, how aware of stress we are. Like, there are people, like, I think I picked on my mom in the show a little bit, but even me, were like, when I've been really stressed and I've been unaware because I'm shoving it down. So I think, like, yeah, for those people who are kind of in the mindset of, oh, you know, stress, I don't have to worry about that, or I'm not stressed, or this isn't playing a role in my IBS, the conversation about the stress chemistry could be useful because then we could talk about research studies and, like, the data that kind of proves, like, no, like, this this is a thing. Like, it's really hard to measure your subjective experience of stress because, again, like, 15 people could all go through the exact same thing at the exact same time. But we're all going to experience that stress differently, depending on like our previous traumas, right. our inflammation levels and whatever else. So it's nice to have the research studies where they look at cortisol or, you know, adrenaline or corticotropin releasing hormone, where it's like, we could study those hormones. And sometimes they will inject those hormones into people and elicit a response. And it kind of helps you wrap your head around like, oh, okay, that stress chemistry really is doing stuff to me, even if I'm not super consciously aware of it. And I'm not really in tune with that. Right. Um, so I like that, that kind of piece of it. I would say, though, I, have you observed this that like in the functional medicine community, again, I'm going to pick on my own profession, again, um, I feel like every episode, I I every episode, I say too. but you know, there's this tendency within functional medicine to try to evaluate the stress response and wrap our heads around it by doing adrenal testing, like cortisol testing. Have you seen that be really yeah. common amongst mm -hmm. the patients that you've worked with or the people that you've seen? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have, have seen that. I, I think uh, typically from my standpoint, I, I feel like, I feel like from like a, a Dutch test type standpoint, in particular, that's the one I feel like a lot of my clients will request. Like, that's the interesting thing that you're saying. Like, sometimes, I almost think sometimes for certain people, like, trying to look at the data proves to them that that's a problem. Yeah. And I think the same thing, like, could be said with certain gut tests, mm -hmm. too. Um, but I, I think with the... With the Dutch test or like with some of these stress tests, it's like I talk to the client like I know that they're stressed. Yeah. Like I, there's very obvious things going on. And so in those particular cases, like I'd much more focus time and energy on the actual um, interventions that would be yeah. helpful than time, money, energy, resources on a Dutch test yeah. it is sort of my general feeling mm -hmm. about it. There's, again, like, if someone really wants to do a Dutch test or is, like, requesting that, usually I'll, I'll order one. But it's not something I do that regularly at all. It's yeah, pretty like you rare. don't bring it up necessarily. Um, right. It's not something I typically bring up uh, because, like like I was saying, I, I think that, first off, the, t the test is, I think, overcomplicates things a little bit, too, like, for the... Um, clients I've worked with, like they, there's so much information on the test that could be boiled down to like what what we're saying, like okay, your your stress response is is overactive, and if we work on that, like these pieces will just kind of 
more often than not fall mm-hmm. into place. But yeah, I, I 100% agree. There's a, there's a common theme that I see of wanting to do adrenal type testing or yeah. horm- in, in-depth hormone testing. Yeah. And again, I, I just don't necessarily know if it's always a valuable tool unless I, I feel like that per- it sort of proves to that person that, oh, like my cortisol is off and the pattern's off and I need to work yeah. on that. Like it's very data oriented, but that's generally w- what I see too. I definitely see an over an overuse probably of those sorts of things. Yeah. And I do think, you know, one of the things about functional medicine that everybody talks about, like if you listen to Mark Hyman or, you know, whatever, you know, big wig out there, yeah. a lot of the times, one of the selling points with functional medicine and integrated medicine is the testing right? Like, oh, test, don't guess. Yeah. And it's just, it's so funny to me sometimes Yeah. because it, that sounds so tempting and it's such a catchy little slogan to say like test, don't guess. But there's so many things that we don't understand about hormones or microbes or the adrenals. Like there's so much we don't understand. And it's kind of almost arrogant to assume that we can capture everything about a particular pathway on a test, it's like, I don't, I don't think that our understanding of any system in the body is quite that perfect. So it's, it always kind of struck me as funny. Um, Right. But yeah, I think that sometimes people use it as an excuse to not tune into their body as much. If I have somebody who completely, like they self-assess stress is like two out of 10. And I'm really suspicious that they're just deeply out of touch with their stress. Like maybe that would be a point where I would entertain the thought of doing a test like this. But, you know, generally, I haven't used adrenal tests in years because I haven't found them to be helpful. And I don't know. Did I ever yeah. tell you that I got an adrenal test done years ago? I, I, I don't remember if you did. So right after I graduated from grad school, I knew I was stressed. And my response being like into yeah. functional medicine was, OK, I'm going to try to like quantify that. I'm going to try to get some objective information about that. So I had, I don't even think I had my license yet. I think I was in that limbo between like graduating and licensure. And I had a colleague yeah. order a, salivary, a adrenal salivary index for me. And for those of you who don't know, it's basically you spit into a tube four times and it's like 8 a.m., noon, 4 p.m., 8 p.m. or something. And you're measuring the rhythm of cortisol throughout the day. And I had a colleague order this for me. Again, because I had the perception that stress was a big deal and that test came back and it looked flawless. Like, I mean, there was like one point was one point out of range or something really obnoxious. Otherwise, it was a beautiful rhythm. And that test allowed me to live in denial for longer because I saw that test result and I said, wow, that actually looks really good. I guess stress isn't a big deal for me. Okay. And I just like wiped my hands a bit and I ignored that piece of my health for many years after that. And it was only years and years later that I realized, oh, those tests are actually quite deeply flawed and probably a waste of money. And I knew enough to get the test because I knew I was stressed. I should have just listened to that and saved the 125 bucks or whatever the test ended up being. Right, right. I feel like such a knucklehead now. Right. Um, but it's really tempting to try to measure stress chemistry and get like a quantity of it. Right. I don't think it's really fruitful. 
Yeah, I think again, like there, I think too, it goes back to maybe getting too lost in the testing. Like you're investing all this time, energy and resources into the test. But if you just look at your case, like a little bit deeper and invest some of that time energy on actual interventions, that might be helpful. I think that's a, a lot better use of your time, energy and money than doing some of these tests that again would tell you something you I would say should tell you something that you already yeah. know but like like yeah. you have said sometimes it's hard it's so funny that you bring this up because I had a client literally last night who was talking to me and was like the whole call was stress like you could yeah. see the stress feel the stress yeah you could see him like you know yep. totally stressed out yep but then he was like, oh, I'm not stressed. And I'm like, whoa, 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 like, we, let's rewind. Like, everything that you're telling me is stressed. But there's, and, and I think with the SIBO space too, like, the whole process of dealing with SIBO and this, the different opinions and, like, probably the trauma yes. going through a lot of the, the, the like, functional or conventional yeah. um, interventions that, can sometimes not be fruitful. Like that's kind of the stress that I was yeah, seeing from it's this trauma particular in person. And of um, right. It's trauma. And I think that um, that trauma sometimes goes unnoticed too, because they're like, well, I'm not stressed yeah. about my job or I'm not stressed about my relationships or I'm not stressed. Um, and I think sometimes like you're saying that SIBO trauma yeah. can be a huge factor. And I think, again, the, there can be dietary um, stress yeah. as well that people don't see either. Some of these physical stressors that, like, we think of stress as, like, a very yeah. mental, emotional thing. But, like, yeah. if you're not sleeping you get or, injured. Um, you know, right, those sorts of things can also affect uh -huh. your stress chemistry as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's always interesting the more, like... I, it's the more I talk to people and work as a practitioner, the the better I get at spotting the individuals that do sort of rate a lower yeah. stress point, and then we're talking, and it's like, wait, yeah, I I don't know, maybe we need to dig deeper yeah. on the stress side of things, but yeah, it's some, it's kind of like reading the situation and being kind of between the lines sometimes with talking to people about stress to figure out if that is a, is yeah. a bigger factor. And I think usually it's a factor for most people. It's just to like what extent yeah. that's driving some of the GI dysfunction. Yeah, to what extent is it driving what's going on versus playing a secondary role? And to what extent are you aware of it? I think are the two biggest variables. Right. Um, yeah, but, for sure. And you know, and I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'll bring it up again is that, I, I do find that a lot of people, frankly, get triggery when I bring up stress. I mean, not as much now because I'm I better at like my delivery and how I bring it up. Yeah. But I know like I have had patients actually like lose it and get really like in my face and angry at me for just bringing up the word stress. And I think it's really a trauma response because... In conventional medicine, and even sometimes in functional medicine, people who frankly don't get it, and maybe they've never had SIBO before, they've never had IBS before, they don't know like where your headspace is at, like the the people who are out of touch for whatever reason, 
will oftentimes bring up stress as this like very shamey, blamey, um, like dismissive thing. Like, oh, you're just stressed. Like, you know, just get over it and your IBS will go away. See you never. And it's like, you know, like they wash their hands of you or like, you know, oh, you're, you're just stressed. If you would just meditate for an hour every day, you know, you'll, your SIBO will go away. And it's like, well, there's other stuff too, usually by that point, like there's nutritional factors and there's like lifestyle stuff and there's, there's maybe SIBO. So it's not that stress is ever the only reason why you're in the pickle that you're in, but it's like, I just find that conventional medical doctors and actually quite a lot of integrative people approach stress as this very, like, I think it's, a, I'm going to get a little deep on this. I think it's a move to protect their ego sometimes because yeah. it's almost like, yeah. oh, the things that I recommended to you didn't work. Well, clearly I wasn't the problem here. You are. Or like my yeah. recommendations were not the problem here. You must just be weird or you just must be so stressed that my magical PPI or whatever can't take effect. And it's like this bullshit ego stuff of like, you know, it's, yeah. it's either bullshit ego saving, like obviously me and my drugs aren't the problem or me and my supplements aren't the problem. You must be the weird one. Or this dismissive, like, well, I've got nothing else for you. You just must be stressed. See you never kind of dismissive tone. Right. But then a lot of people have experienced that from their other providers. So then when somebody like you or I brings up stress in like a very real way, uh, some people can get really triggered because they're like, nope, I'm not going down this path again. Like this, this was really upsetting and this person right. doesn't get it. And they don't get me and like, I feel unheard and I'm never going to get better. And it kind of triggers that whole like cascade of awfulness for people. But now, like I said, I've gotten better in recent years of like bringing it up in a way to say like, it's, you know, I don't think that you are stressing yourself into having these migraines or I don't think you're like intentionally stressing yourself out, but we do need to have a real conversation about this. If we're going to untangle all of the, the web of dysfunction that your poor body is dealing with. And yes, stress is one of those threads. Uh, But yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, like a patient getting really triggered when you bring up stress, but it's a very sensitive subject for some people because they've gotten bullshitted to so much in their other clinical experiences. Yeah, I definitely see that. I feel like at this point, what typically helps I think buffer that a little bit is usually when we talk about stress I tend to provide myself as an example of like, oh, like I struggled with yeah. these things. Like this is typically what yeah. what I do for stress, but that's not going to be maybe what works for you. And we kind of run through different options. So sometimes I feel like just knowing like we struggle with stress, like everyone has a level of stress that, that they're struggling with. And maybe my stress isn't at a level at this point that someone else's stress is at or maybe someone has a little bit less stress than me but there's still like some level of stress tolerance that you want to have built up or you want to be able to build up some stress tolerance to help you deal with stress and yeah so I think typically like trying to connect the idea that like just because we're health and wellness practitioners 
doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have the same issues or problems with stress that everyone else deals with. So yeah, I do think that sometimes helps like ease into the conversation a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think too, what helps me sometimes ease into the conversation is like talking about stress from like a physical standpoint too. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Like what it does to the body. Right. And I think even like, again, having, some of the gut stuff that's going on or some of the dysfunction that's going on could create more stress internally. Um, Mm -hmm. How things like sleep, diet, um, other lifestyle things could be promoting stress. So I think I like to view it as a a pretty broad category as well, which I think a lot of people kind of view it as like a mental emotional thing, um, which... I think it's a limited way to look at stress. I think also a lot of people view it as a character flaw. Yeah, for sure. Like, like it's, we- it's a weakness. You know, like, yeah, like, I should be able to do this. I should be able to suck it up, buttercup. I should be able to, yeah. you know, on and on and on and on and on. And it becomes this, like, background, like, view of yourself of, like, if you acknowledge that you have stress, then you're weak and yeah. you're less than and you're like, you won't be loved or you won't get the promotion right. or whatever it might be. Um, and I know like for me, it's been difficult. Like I- I've been more stressed for sure the last, you know, while I don't even know. I don't know how to quantify it, but like 2020 was stressful just because like being a business owner, like you don't know like how the world's a what's going to happen to the world, but b like what's going to happen with my business? Yeah. Like, are are we going to be okay? And then it was like in the fall, I just I had way too many things on my plate. Like starting this podcast with you, which was the best out of all of them, but nonetheless, um, I just had a ton on my plate. And so, kind of like the fall through to about now, I've been more stressed, and I've noticed um, just like how it's affecting my body. And I'm, I'm needing more tools and more resources and more rest than I would deem like an acceptable amount. Like if I, if I go to bed way early and I get like a lot more sleep, there is some neuron in the back of my head that's like, oh, like, I, I don't know, like you're weak or you're less yeah. than because normal people don't need this much sleep yeah. or normal people can like work during the week and then get chores done on the weekend and you need to rest on the weekend. Like what's wrong with you? And I was raised in a family that's very much not like that. Like they're not, they didn't plant that in my brain. I think it's just like a cultural thing of like this, this bullshitty, like weaker than less than what's wrong with you. You should be able to do X, Y, and Z stuff. And it's really interesting to pick that apart when you become more aware of it. Yeah. It's so interesting Um, that you bring all that up. Because I was just listening to, like, this Instagram live with this local... She's a psychologist, but she um, kind of talks... Oh, the one you told me yeah, about? Yeah, the gal. I've been following them. Yeah, she yeah. she had a, a woman on. I, forget, I think her name was Mara something. I forget. But she basically is talking about perfectionism. Like, how it's so built into our culture to try to, like, be everything yeah. for everybody. And we want to be perfectionists without, like any acknowledgement of what you need to do to like in order to be productive like in order to be as productive as you want to be like you there is give and take like you have to be able to invest 
some time and energy for self-care so that you can be productive. Mm -hmm. But I think everybody wants to just be productive without having to put some of that time and energy into like actually taking care of yourself so you can be productive. Yeah. That's the piece that doesn't really get discussed. Um, And I think it's, you're so right. It's very boiled into our culture um, out from the get go. I mean, I even, I always refer refer to my time in sports, like the motto of giving 110% is the thing that always Mm -hmm. comes up for me. Like that's an impossible thing. You can't give more than 100% yet. This is what we're telling kids that they need to give 110%. So I think that, you know, the the idea of self-care, managing stress is just not valued at all in our culture. So it like every, I think there's just these innate barriers within each person to want to be like, everything for everybody, super productive, like kind of perfectionist type mentality. And I, again, like I struggle with all these things. It's, it's hard to combat them, but I I think there's definitely cultural things going on underneath all that stuff that could be creating problems for a lot of people. Yeah. I think it's, it's in the background again. It's like, uh, how aware of it are you? Yeah. Oftentimes. Um, Because it's kind of the deeper layers that are planted there, not not consciously by us and not consciously by people in our lives. Sometimes it's just like we observe it enough. Right. I remember, too, like, you know, we'll have to we'll have to do a whole episode about like athletics and the gut at some point, like physical performance, Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, when you said that, it made me think of when I was a rower. And, yeah, there was like this this culture with rowing on my team where it was like you know you you want to get in the best boat but then you want to be like the best person in the best boat right so that your seat is really secure and like they'll never move you to the second best boat and I remember like we were you know we practiced in the morning every every morning and then we usually had weightlifting afterwards like every other day like two or three times a week we would go weightlift but then we were expected to do a, a second workout, which sometimes was a third workout. Like we were expected to do an afternoon workout yeah. also. And we, like we're college students and we're trying to keep up with coursework. But like we were expected to do, you know, the rowing workout from like 530 to 8 and then weightlift from like 830 to 930 or whatever it was. And then go back to the gym in the afternoon or evening and do another workout. And like it, the people who didn't, do that extra workout were berated or shunned by the coach and he would make such a big deal out of it. And like the people who did do it were so praised that again, it like it further ingrains this like, Oh, I want, I want the coach to look favorably on me. And like, I want to be like a good teammate and like, you know, you, I would start to beat myself up if I didn't get that extra workout in every day. Yeah. But then I think I overtrained myself and I think a lot of my, my teammates did too. And then we had a lot of girls who herniated yeah. discs or blew out their back or blew out a knee. And it's like, oh, well, because you're asking like 20 year old girls to work out basically three times a day, which right. is preposterous, actually. Like we're not Olympic, we're not right. Olympians. Like maybe some of us want to be eventually, but like right now we're just yeah. in college and 
you know, there's a fine line between like pushing yourself and like being all that you could be and breaking stuff. Yeah. And I feel like we were always striding that line. So it's interesting you brought up athletics because, yeah, it was definitely that like 110%. If you give anything less, you're not like a good teammate or a good whatever you are. Right. And I think like the thing about athletics that's so interesting to me, especially with female athletes, is that like there are potentially very clear physiological signs of stress too Mm -hmm. with I'm thinking of like the female athlete triad. I don't know if you've kind of dove into that, but it's like, it's like anemia, um, kind of disordered eating patterns or just not eating enough for the level of activity that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like, yeah, yeah, amenorrhea, um, osteopenia, like those types of things that are really common in like, especially female, like endurance type athletes, um, like to me is all stress. And I was sort of in some of those, I think rowing would be considered, depending on the length of time, was was it endurance or was it more? Yeah, we had a nice sport because it fluctuated. So in the spring, you do sprints that only last like seven or eight minutes typically. And then in the fall, you do longer, like, you know, 20 25 30 Mm. minute races like five or six k races um so we kind of got a little bit of both depending on the season and we did a fair amount of weightlifting so yeah i don't i don't remember a lot of my teammates having the female athlete triad necessarily like because it's also it's not a sport where typically being really thin yeah is ideal it's like you would actually rather be a bit muscular so that you can like really propel the boat um so yeah, luckily we weren't in a very thin centric sport necessarily, which Yeah, and I good. I did sort of endurance running. I was in cross country in high school and and I think like the good news is my cross country team I felt like was a little bit more moderate on the mileage. Like there were definitely cross country teams that mm-hmm. were like way more intense mileage wise than uh, than us, but like pretty much every girl on my team would lose their period for like, you know, four mm. months and that was just kind of normal you know so yeah. i think right, i think like there's there's a level in the athletic side of things and we should probably have a a, a talk more in depth about this because i'm kind of super into this sort of stuff yeah. but yeah i think that mentality can then carry over into a lot of different areas where it is like oh i have to give like everything that I have for this one particular goal and that can be really stressful or I have to give 110% at everything I do and nothing can give like so yeah it's it's really I think uh sports can be definitely very good like there's a lot of great aspects of sports but I think that aspect yeah um is a little bit trickier and I I tend to also see that most of the coaches are more male or the ones that I had were more male, um, which I think, I don't know, this going down a rabbit hole, but kind of, I, I don't know. There was, there was more yeah. of that. Kind of like that, like right, aggression that, almost. And that like, right, go there get wasn't like a mother hen type uh, environment with a lot of the yeah. more intense sports that I played. It was, and I always did better yeah. with that sort of coaching style. There were definitely a few good, coaches I had that were like more 
encouraging versus like scary. Like I definitely had my yeah. my fair share of scary yeah. coaches. That is enough to like put you into fight or flight state. Just sort of being oh, yeah. around them. Um, yeah, I had one of those in college. Yeah, and it's like, and I feel like it's so interesting. One of my little sisters played basketball and it wasn't like her really sport but she was athletic and could have like been a a good player and she had like a really good JV coach her sophomore year who was very like supportive like you know really encouraged my sister and my sister played really well for her and then the her junior year she had this dude take over JV and he was just awful I've never seen a coach like this and it's so interesting because it's like you're the jv coach you're not the varsity coach like you would think like yeah like right out for blood i was out for blood my sister like literally fell apart never played after that and i think like that can be like traumatizing when you have a a coach like that yeah oh absolutely and that kind of parallels like when i and we'll kind of we'll segue off the athletics thing in a minute but it's a worthwhile rabbit hole to go down, but I had the same experience. Like my high school coach was very supportive, very like, you know, positive reinforcement was his, his thing more so. Um, and it was kind of a running gag. Like if he got pissed and actually yelled yeah. for real, for real, it was weird. Like we only ever saw that a couple of times and it was, it was spooky because yeah. it was very out of character for him. Um, And then my freshman year of college, I had a wonderful coach and it was very like, like we were his boat. Like he only coached our freshman boat and we were a very tight knit unit and we performed really well with him. He was goofy with us, but like also obviously like knew the sport and knew how to train us and push us, but he was very encouraging. And then flip to the last three years of college that I rode And we had the head coach and he was just a nasty, nasty man. But it, it was, it was like PTSD. Like he, you know, if you didn't perform, he, he was not the coach. Like if you didn't perform well, he was not the coach who would ask, Hey, what's up? Are you okay? Like, let's talk. He would be the coach that berates you in front of the group and says, like, I remember him asking at one point, like, he was reading off our scores on a race, like our times. And when he got to my name, he asked, what happened to my Nikki Sear? Like oh what? Ha- like in a judgy yeah. way. And I was just crushed. And he did it in like a way to publicly shame me in front of my teammates. Like, oh, and coming in, you know, X place, like 12th place, yeah. Nikki Sear. What happened to my Nikki Sear? And I remember just being so devastated and that was his style of motivation and it didn't work. Like I yeah. just, I crumbled for three years. I crumbled under that pressure. So yeah, looking back, I mean, there's yeah. there's some PTSD too. And that's something, I, I don't know if you, if we've talked about this necessarily, but like for a lot of years, I looked at my life and I was like, oh, I don't have any trauma. Right. Right. Like I've never been to war. I've never seen a person die. I've never been assaulted. I've never, you know lived with an alcoholic that like had fits of rage. Like, you know, I don't have any of the stereotypical, like, what are they called? Like the aces, like the adverse childhood events. Like I didn't have any of those. And so I kind of looked at stress too, as like, well, I don't like, I don't have a reason to have trauma brain and stress because like, I don't have any of those 
aces in my past and those really bad traumas. But then I look back at stuff like this, like dealing with that really nasty coach for three years or, you know, medically induced stuff from like yeah. when I had Lyme disease or when I had stuff going on as a kid. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, there's yeah. other kinds of trauma. And no, I've never witnessed a human being die in front of my eyes, but like there's yeah. other traumatic shit. And acknowledging that kind of has helped me in recent years too, kind of understanding that there's many flavors of trauma and it doesn't have to be like the really big blockbuster traumas that we think about to be considered traumatic. Right, 100%. I feel like, again, I, in a similar boat, think like there was a lot of trauma around sports related things and just kind of like, oh, I'm not measuring up at this particular time. Like the pressure that was there at certain moments. Um, And I think that with your particular situation, like, there was an extra level with kind of the public nature of it. Like, as humans, we want to belong. And so, like, it feels like you're being cast off um, Mm -hmm. from the group, which I think is, like, an extra layer of awful that sports does do. Like, I've definitely had coaches that do that, like, call people out. And it's just like, ugh. It's, like, not a good look. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think we should definitely do like a, a full athletic yeah. gut connection type episode. We, we do yeah. well. And I feel, that, like I feel like we've already mentioned before, total plug, Lucy Mailing, we want to have you on the podcast because like we can also right. talk about how gut or how exercise positively influences the gut too. So, you know, right. it's, it's a right. double-edged sword, like up to a certain point, it's very beneficial. And then certain elements of athletics and sports can be detrimental. Like if you overtrain yourself and get into that female athlete triad territory or just exhaust yourself, or if you have like negative, you know, psychological stressors from like the environment that you're in with coaching, like there's a lot that can go into that. But let's, um, I have no concept of how long we've been recording, but Shall we talk about a little bit of the stress chemistry itself? What we promised the dear listeners? Yes. Um, yeah, you can go ahead and, yeah, and jump so, into it. Uh, so I'll preface this conversation, though, with recall that in my humble opinion, testing for some of these things in blood is probably a waste of time and money for most people, I would argue. With the caveat, if you think you have the autoimmune disease, Addison's disease, Like, if you have those symptoms, um, then I think measuring, like, blood levels of cortisol might make sense. Shy of Addison's, I don't don't know. Um, But what I'll share is that your your glands don't make stuff on their own, right? Like, your thyroid gland doesn't just make thyroid hormone because it makes it when your brain tells the thyroid to make more hormone. And that's what we're measuring in TSH when we get that test done. Similarly, the adrenals don't make anything just because they want to. They wait for the command from the head honcho upstairs. I'm pointing to my brain. For those of you on audio only, I'm pointing to my head. And so we have this cascade where part of the brain, the the hypothalamus, I think if I remember correctly, makes something called corticotropin releasing factor or hormone, depending where you're reading it. And then that corticotropin releasing hormone tells the adrenals to make all of their adrenal stuff. And then we get the cascade of like what, what oftentimes is called the stress hormone cortisol. And that does a whole bunch of stuff to the body. 
what I've seen, like I was just revisiting this recently because I was polishing up like the stress vagus nerve portions of my online course. And there's a lot of research. If you just go into like PubMed and you research like corticotropin releasing hormone or factor and IBS or motility or intestinal permeability. Yeah. And they've done studies where they inject this like first piece of the cascade, right? Like they inject that corticotropin releasing factor into animals or people and it elicits a lot of IBS symptoms like the visceral hypersensitivity, dysmotility, like slower gastric emptying, slower small bowel motility. And typically with like really acute stress, it's going to accelerate colon motility and peristalsis, which results in kind of like this double whammy of you have diarrhea in the moment because your colon is being stimulated. And also you could have something like SIBO or gastroparesis or maldigestion up higher in the system because your stomach emptying and your small bowel motility is coming to a screeching halt. Um, And then similarly, it'll induce leaky gut. And one of the things that I thought was really relevant that I I was working on with this presentation was that uh, the stress chemistry like uh, corticotropin releasing factor triggers mast cell degranulation. And the next couple episodes we're going to cover is we're going to take a deep dive into the world of histamine intolerance and mast cells as it pertains to the gut. But as a kind of premise, mast cells are kind of a big deal. And when they degranulate and they release their juices, one of the ones that is of particular interest is histamine. And that's one of the big things that stress does is it triggers those mast cells to release all their stuff. And then it's like, now you have you have the effects that are due to the hormone itself. And now you have the effects that are due to the histamine and the mast cell degranulation. And they compound on each other and make they make each other worse. And that's just the first yeah. piece of the stress cascade. Like I didn't even, I didn't personally in my presentation, I didn't bother taking quite as much of a deep dive into cortisol and adrenaline, but those are going to be there too. And then all of these are going to rev up your sympathetic tone and make it so that your poor vagus nerve can't do its job. And you're not going to stand a good chance of getting into that rest and digest place. So then we have more long-term maldigestion and dysmotility and gut communication issues. Uh, but that's kind of my executive summary is that if you kind of go down the rabbit hole and search for like these different chemicals, they've done some interesting studies where they actually inject it into people or animals. And it does elicit very IBS-y sounding symptoms oftentimes. Yeah. No, for sure. And I really like um, that you bring up, it's not just about like what's happening acutely. It's how like that stress response over time, like could basically weaken your parasympathetic Mm -hmm. because you're now sort of locked in sympathetic that isn't turning off. And there is like a reason that we have a stress response. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the stress response is necessarily a bad thing. Um, But it's more like if that cannot be turned off well, or if like the systems aren't balanced, if it's not balanced with your parasympathetic system, then that's where the real trouble lies. So no, I I really liked that summary. I think it's a, it's a great summary. And it's really interesting too. 
Like, I feel like everyone's had those moments where they've had, like, the stress diarrheas. I know I I have. I've, it's funny we talked about sports because it most yes. of the time, like, before cross country meet, I would have the worst, the worst poops. We're twins. Um, Further proof that Amy aww. and I are meant to be people. Observe. Observe. Yeah. Like, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, I think that it's, it's one of those things where, like, that whole cascade response from, like, a an evolutionary standpoint is, like, we're not going to send as much resources to the gut anymore. We're going to send it to the limbs because we think, like, you are under attack, essentially. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, you know, we're going to get rid of anything that's slowing you down, Go, yep. like in the colon. We're going to make it lighter. So you're going to run run away from, from struggles faster. And if you faster. think about it, like, it might also be, we don't know how long you're going to be running from this tiger. So you, right. know, you could be running right. for the next 20 hours. We don't know. We might as well just poo right now. Get that right. over with because it it's better to do it right away than to stop midway through a long run from a predator. So right. yeah, we'll the load. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and I think it's a great point you make about the the mast cells, because um, I I think from a histamine standpoint, and I know we're going to get into it next week, but mm-hmm. there's such a strong tendency to want to avoid like every food, like go down the histamine food restriction rabbit oh, yeah. hole, which like, you know, there's potentially some benefits of avoiding some histamine foods but like the extent of the rabbit hole that i find people going down on the histamine side of things like you're probably better off maybe avoiding some histamine triggers while working on things like stress yeah and balancing out the environment like uh, those sorts of things so i love that you bring that up in relation to histamine because yeah, I find it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole and miss some of these very foundational pieces yeah. when it comes to helping with mast cell stabilization um, and doing and managing your your stress response is a really key aspect of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was awesome that you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, like I said, we're going to talk a lot more about mast cells and histamine next time, but it's a pretty big deal. And again, like if you if you trigger mast cells to degranulate via a different mechanism, it will produce visceral hypersensitivity, motility disruption, leaky gut. Like it'll do a lot of the IBS stuff. Yeah. But then similarly, yeah. like the CRF injection, like that'll produce a lot of the same stuff. So again, it's like you're kind of getting it from both from multiple angles. But yeah. then it makes you think, like, yeah. the people who are managing their IBS with diet, whether it be low histamine or low FODMAP or something else, or the people who are just wiping out things with antimicrobials, it's like, I, I find that a lot of people seek help from people like us because they're like, they have the sense that there's some stone that has yet to be turned over, right? Like, something yeah. is hiding, yeah. something is eluding them, and they just need to find it and address it. And very frequently, it's this scenario where, like, you have multiple things coming together that could be the cause of your IBS or your SIBO. And you have to kind of knock each of those out. Otherwise, the SIBO or the IBS is just going to persist. 
So right. Right. yeah, I think that addressing both sides, like yes, mitigate things like histamine foods or FODMAPs for a while. Yes, consider you know antihistamine supplements or antimicrobials or probiotics, but also if you're constantly wound up in a sympathetic excess state and your vagus nerve can't work and you're degranulating the mast cells that you do have, it's just like, you're not gonna see tremendous amounts of progress um, if you don't address the stress to whatever extent you can. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I think um, one aspect too, I don't think we've totally talked about that I think is worth mentioning. And I, and I mentioned it at the beginning, but just how diet can play into the stress response. I know, like, again, if we've talked about under eating, I feel like a lot, but if you're kind of under calories wise, like that could certainly create that ca same cascade that we're talking about. Um, I also think from a carbohydrate standpoint, there's like interesting things that happen, interesting things that happen with the stress response to try to maintain blood sugar levels. Yeah. Um, and so if people are dipping low in carbs, like if you're eating carbs, the body can use those carbs to maintain blood sugar levels. Yeah. If you're not eating enough carbs to maintain blood sugar levels, then the body has to find glucose somewhere else. Yeah. So maybe usually what it's going to do is start breaking down protein to make glucose. And that whole process requires cortisol. And so there can be some dysregulation from a cortisol standpoint that happens when you dip too low carb because the body is just like, we need glucose, yeah. but we're not getting it. Apparently, we have mechanisms to adjust for that. Yeah but it requires like essentially a stress response yep. to do it. Um, so again, it's, it's definitely an area that I feel like it might depend on like your level of activity of what your carb needs would be to kind of maintain blood glucose levels with dietary factors. Um, um, but I think it's an important point just because a lot of the clients when they come and work with me are pretty low in carbs and they kind of show some signs of, of blood sugar dysregulation and yep. signs that the signs that their stress response is overactive and sometimes doing kind of different things dietarily like adding carbs in can be really helpful at regulating the stress yep. response and I think that that can sometimes be like someone's like meditating all the time and like tr doing everything right, but like in their heads doing everything right. And then I'm looking at their diet and like it's a diet composition yeah. problem, yeah. a stress response standpoint. So I, I just think that's an important point to think about. No, that's huge. I'm really glad you brought that up. I have some vague recollection. Oh, I don't remember if it was undergrad or grad school or a conference or something, but I remember somebody somewhere saying uh, that the primary purpose of cortisol is to stabilize blood sugar. Yeah. And it was interesting, like it stood out to me because even like in school, we are taught that cortisol is the stress hormone. And yeah. if you read about it, uh, like if you Google cortisol right now, especially if you read about it on a functional medicine type website, they're going to talk about cortisol as though it is the stress hormone, 
but it does other stuff too. It's also playing a role in your inflammatory load. Yeah. Why things like steroids will make you feel marvelous for like a couple of days. If you take prednisone and you're inflamed, you're going to be like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. And then you want the prednisone and you're like, I hate my life because they're very effective anti-inflammatories in the moment. And similarly, like your body, you know, when you're squirting out all the stress chemistry, running away from the lion or whatever, like you don't want to have puffy, swollen, aching joints. So you're going to pump yourself full of a steroid that takes away inflammation, but you can't live like that all day, every day. Cause right. then like things, things start to get weird and dysregulated. But I love that you, you brought up the blood sugar because it, when you look at these adrenal salivary index type profiles, which again, side note, don't recommend, but if you look at them and the general premise of them, it'll always start off with glucose highest in the morning and then it goes lower and it kind of like does a, you know, like a little bit of a curvy line down until it's lowest right before you go to bed. And that's because you're eating all day. Like, it's not that you wake up in a fight or flight mode and your body is like, ah, crap, I just ran away from a tiger all night. Like most people are not waking up in a panic fight or flight mode. It's just that as you slept for longer and longer and longer and you didn't eat anything, ideally, if unless you're like sleep eating, but as you sleep for longer and you go longer without food, your body is going to naturally rev up cortisol so that you start pulling blood sugar out of the liver and you start breaking down that glycogen and breaking down other tissues in the body in order to stabilize your blood sugar. If you didn't have that, you would either be massively hypoglycemic and go into a coma in the middle of the night, or you would wake up starving every single night of your life. So it's interesting you brought that up because that is said to be from somebody I cannot reference because I don't remember now that that's the primary purpose of cortisol. And then the stress chemistry part of it is kind of secondary to the blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah, no, I yeah, no, I think it's interesting too that you brought up the sleep side of things. Cause I usually think, you know, if someone's waking up in the night at, you know, two or three or four, you know, before they need to wake up, that can be like your blood sugar not being well regulated at night and having to promote a lot more cortisol earlier than like typically, like usually if someone has good blood sugar balance and you might have glycogen stores to use to create more blood sugar, you kind of get to that point where you're running out of sources of glucose to use, the body's gonna start pumping out cortisol probably a lot earlier than it would if your blood sugar was more balanced or you had some of these glycogen storage storage um, stuff. So again, usually if you're waking up a lot at, at night and there there could potentially not always be a blood sugar component and a cortisol component of your body trying to maintain glucose levels yeah. during the night, but not really having any easy to access glucose sources and having to promote more cortisol release, which then kind of wakes you up. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think, I think also, I remember again, um, not sure of the source and I don't know if I verified it. Um, I think it might've been Karazian, but I remember when I took one of his seminars way back in the day, uh, he even brought up the point that if, if your normal mechanism to stabilize your blood sugar at night being cortisol, if that fails, 
then again, your body really doesn't want to go into a hypoglycemic coma. So your next protective mechanism is adrenaline. So he even described like some people will even wake up with like a lot of energy, like just all of a sudden, like really awake. That actually might be that your body is giving you a squirt of adrenaline because adrenaline will also pull glucose out of tissues and stabilize your blood sugar very quickly, but it's also going to wake you up really quickly and give you a lot of energy. So he even described that as like the fail safe. If cortisol is not able to maintain your blood sugar for you, your next in line is adrenaline. And then it can really mess with your sleep then if you're pumping out adrenaline in the middle of the night. For sure. For sure. No, that's all really interesting. It's crazy that the body has so many adaptive ways to regulate glucose, but it makes sense. Like, it's, it's such a, a precious, yeah, it's such a precious yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, I think like, again, that's why getting enough ca- overall calories, getting enough carbs for your body and for like what makes sense for you is so important because mm-hmm. you don't want to have to access cortisol or adrenaline every time you need blood glucose balance. You want to have yeah. like some of your early on ways to get it. Like you want to have glycogen stores. You want to have glucose um availability without having to yeah. access those those that kind of stress type um, response yeah you want to utilize plan a not plan c or d, d or e d, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right yep yeah it kind of it, it reminds me too of you know the idea that if you don't feed your microbiota fiber they'll start munching on the mucus and they'll start munching on you and it's kind yeah. of a similar concept of like, we humans think that we're so smart. Like we think that we could just starve the SIBO, starve the bacteria, starving yourself. And those bacteria really want to live. They find a way and they're just going to eat something right. different. And it's going to be your own mucus or your own gut lining or your other good bacteria. It's going to be something else, but you're yeah. never going to kill all the bacteria. Yeah. as long as you live and they have a body that they can munch on. And similarly, it's like, you're never going to fully outfox like your ability to stabilize your blood sugar. Like your body always has another way. It's just that as you work down the list from plan A to plan B, C, D, E, the further down the alphabet you get, the less you're going to like your body's plan right. to get you out of that spot. Right. Like, Eating enough carbohydrates and eating a nourishing diet is far more enjoyable for you than if you got all the way down to the point where you're shooting adrenaline into your veins every so often to pull glucose out of your tissues. Like that's not super fun for you, but your body's smart enough to do it if it needs to, because it'll open whatever knucklehead ideas you think you're doing in order to uh, do whatever you're doing. Yeah, for sure. No, 100%. I'm I'm in full agreement. And I think like, I would say other things that could affect the rhythm, like the cortisol rhythm would be things like circadian rhythms, they can kind of anchor certain hormonal rhythms, like your cortisol rhythm. Um, So I think getting, trying to get some light exposure as much as possible um, in the morning and kind of avoiding tons of blue light at night 
um, I think could be helpful. And I think just in general, getting enough sleep is so critical too. Again, I feel like sleep and like stress are because culturally it's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality. And then stress, it's like, oh, we need to be working 110%. Like culturally, we just don't value those things. So they're often like afterthoughts, like, oh yeah, we know that they're important, but like we have all these supplements and this diet to do. So like, but I think they're so critical. It's another area that like, I'll see people doing a lot of things right. Like maybe their diet's good. Maybe they're like meditating, maybe they're, you know, covering a lot of bases, but then they're sleeping like five to six hours a night. Um, and, and working on that can be really beneficial from a, a stress response standpoint. So it's, again, it's a foundational piece that like, we all know we need sleep, but it can be a tricky one, especially if you're like, I think it's especially tricky if you have like young kids. Um, and this is probably another topic too, but I find so many women that I talk to are like, I was never the same after this pregnancy or like with my third kid. And sometimes there might be like an adhesion situation if they had like a cesarean section. But I think a lot of times it's like they just go into like a very stressed, they like they never recover fully from having that child. And then they're kind of in this state of like waking up all through the night, their kid's not sleeping for the first two years of their life. And like all these like circadian rhythm and stress response systems just get all jumbled and out of whack. I see that all the time. And I think that that's kind of an interesting thing when it comes to the sleep side of things, like getting that re-regulated after kids can be certainly tricky. Um, but I think can be a really valuable thing. Yeah. And that's when Um, a lot of autoimmunity gets diagnosed too, like right after. And there's a lot of hormonal and immune system shifts that happen at that point. Also be, that could be an entire episode as well. Like the kind of like childbirth pregnancy and postpartum, like how that destroys your body. (laughs) You know, I know. know. I've said that for a while. I think that right now, you know, if you look on PubMed or if you go to courses, the prevailing theory about why autoimmunity is diagnosed after pregnancy, like Hashimoto's being the classic that oftentimes is diagnosed, you know, sometime after a woman gives birth to a child, um, the prevailing theory is that the hormones shifting drastically from like having a baby in your body to not, like that shifting throws off the immune system and then you get a very drastic shifting of the immune system and then that perturbs autoimmunity and i i bought that hook line and sinker and i thought yeah they figured that out for years until i had a baby and then now that i'm a mom and i went through that what you're describing i'm convinced that that plays a role like the immune system shifting of the the progesterone and all of that i think that plays a role but it's probably like 10 percent of the role bigger like 90% yeah. chunk is the stress and the sleep because oh my god just oh my god like it's so much but I think yeah. frying people's adrenals yeah. frying their gut brain axis yeah. and just yeah wrecking yeah. their bodies and there's so much pressure to be a parent and like raise your kids right and you know like 
all these things. That's that's a whole other topic. But I think that honestly, that's like 90% of it. Now that I'm a parent, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I've definitely seen just and I've not experienced it. I'm, I'm only a dog mom at this point. But that I, it's just something that I've yeah, it's, he's he's gorgeous. I'm definitely raising him right. <laughs> but yeah, I think that the it's just something I notice. Like just over time, it's that same phrase. Like, oh, I was never right after my second pregnancy, or my third pregnancy, or my first pregnancy. Like I was just never the same. And I think it like it just totally cascades out of control. Like you know, and they never were able to get some of those systems back up and running again, like once they're sort of spiraling. Um, But yeah, it's an area that like, I think super interesting, but I think it really does come down to like the basic like circadian rhythm, stress response stuff, just getting all jacked up and maybe becoming more like what you're saying, sympathetic, dominant, what we talked about earlier, and then the ability to access that parasympathetic becomes majorly disrupted so yeah it's it's definitely an area that i'm nervous about becoming a mom if that ever happens you'll know things ahead of time though right i I, i'm equipped with with the knowledge but i think there's always going to be more stress during that that standpoint from there's always going to be some stress so like the idea that you're you can avoid stress during that time is unrealistic beyonce level famous rich like if you're you know like oprah level rich you can hire everybody like you could just hire an army of people to like be with your kid 24 7 and hold them and interact with them and breastfeed them for you and i don't know like (laughs) like do all the things and then you back in your silk robe and and I don't even know what else and like sip champagne and look at your baby um but yeah if you're like a normal ish person I think there's going to be some sort of stress it's just a matter of what and they're wonderful and beautiful and I wouldn't trade my daughter for anything but oh my god it was a lot yeah yeah no I I I think it's interesting because my sister just had a baby so like she's in the throes of now going back to work this week and then like just the process and the good news is our work's really great like she's easing into it so she's working twice a week and then it'll gradually I think increase I think each month she only she's a dentist so she works I think four days a week but yeah I think it's it's just interesting Having like a new mom very that I'm very close to because you hear like very close hand uh, the the struggles of everything and and all that entails from a stress response. One thing that you know what that I will say that I will so my so my my husband husband family there is a lady in his family um it's like his um, stepmom's like brother stepmom's so like brother his step so like uncle his step uncle um his wife his um, step uncle's his wife his step uncle's um, wife i believe she's um, um, i believe she's um oh man this is gonna i, I oh believe man, she's thai gonna, i believe she's thai and i think they're in their and culture they like basically they like basically um 
go to like like she went to basically the spa for like two months prior to having two months prior to the, having her baby and then the, like another baby, month after like, it another month after like it. where they don't have like, to do where anything they don't have like where everything sort of where everything sort of done for them they get like for them awesome meals made for them like it's like kind of like a relaxing relaxing and i'm like wouldn't it be nice if like in our culture like in our we could go somewhere for like a month prior a month a month or two prior to our baby being born like just relax and chill and chill while people are like making us drawing us back and then you have the kid and then they help you with the initial phase of that phase of that right right I'm like that would be amazing because I think just in general we don't necessarily think about that like as a as a culture that already doesn't think about stress enough like as being important we kind of put stress on the back burner then you have like the most stressful time ever in a human's life not really getting as much attention um and people again acknowledge that it's hard and it's stressful, but like there's not really tend to be as much give and take there as I feel like could be useful. Yeah, and it's interesting you brought that up because I remember my roommates in grad school were going through uh, getting their masters in uh, acupuncture and TCM, and I remember them talking about that. That like in I don't know current day, but in like traditional Chinese culture it's the same like you pamper the shit yeah like yeah. laid on her hand and foot she right, does not clean right. you to help take care of the baby like all of the family all of the town like rallies around the mom and makes her like herbal soups and teas and like helps her uterus get toned back up or whatever but like there's this group effort to nourish and nurture and protect the mom because they acknowledge that it's so hard putting your body through that. And it, I remember thinking that that was really cool. And then I remember thinking about that when I was in the throes of having my daughter stressful. Right. It was, and I remember thinking like, Oh, what I wouldn't give for that right now. Like it, right. Oh my God, it was so not that experience for me. Um, but yeah, I think that it's interesting because I, I do think culturally there's at least a few cultures in the world that like really respect and revere and like spoil the crap out of new moms. And I think that's how it should be. Um, if you're yeah. putting your body through that much and you're like burdened with that much and your hormones are going crazy and like everything is different and like your boobs hurt, your nipples hurt, everything hurts, your uterus is shrinking back down to normal size. Like you, you deserve everything in the world, girlfriend. Yeah, you deserve the meals. You deserve like massages. You, you know that GIF where it's the guy and he's like glitter. I don't yeah. know if that's from a movie or whatever, but yeah, it's like Uncle Rico from uh, Napoleon Dynamite or something. I think and he's like, yeah. yes, girl. Yeah, like I feel like I want to do that to every new mom. Like yes. Yeah deserve for it all sure, yeah for sure for sure no I think that that's I think that we need to like get that movement going like the pamper new mom movement yep. somehow yep and I wasn't uh, my my mom helped a lot Mike was wonderful but it was not quite to that extent but I'm at least confident that my extremely extremely strong-willed five-year-old 
when she chooses to have children someday, if she does so, uh, she will demand that treatment. Like she's, she's a strong enough <laughs> independent woman that if her spouse or whoever does not pamper her, I think she will be very vocal and take an issue with that. Oh she, my gosh. She's a very different energy than me. Perfect. She will stand for none of this shit in her life. So I, I'm encouraged that at least Jess will <laughs> demand change. Did I tell you, by the way, that recently, uh, what better way to wrap up a podcast than to tell a story about my very opinionated five-year-old? Did I tell you that the other day she was bent out of shape because she can't be president of the United States yet? No, I did not hear about that. I think the last thing you told me was she wanted different, like a fan that was pink or something. She, well, she wanted, yes. She told my husband that she, he ruined her life. The ceiling fan <laughs> blades in our living room were not pink. They were brown. And she also told him in the same breath that she would really like to paint our gray car rainbow. Yes. Mm. So uh, similarly, uh, I forget what it was. I think I was brushing her hair, which is like the worst offense ever. And she gets very irate and like tangles. Don't even get me started. But I think I was insisting that I had to brush her hair because it was a mess. And I was trying to explain like, if I don't brush it now, the tangles will get bigger and then you'll look like a white person with dreadlocks and that's not going to be good. And like, it's going to be really bad if we don't address this now. And I, uh, next thing you know, she says something about like, you always get to make the rules. I never get to make the rules. This is so unfair. And I, I've explained it to her. I'm like, actually, like, uh, you get to make the decisions that influence the decisions way more than you realize. Right. Her mom's around you, child. And she was not picking that up. And she said something about me being the boss. And I was like, well, if you want to be the boss of everything, when you grow up, you could be president of the United States. Admitting international people. I know that, like, America is not the center of the universe, but like we kind of are. So run with me here. So it's like, well, you could try to be president of the United States when you grow up someday. And she goes, I want to be president right now. And I explained to her, I was like, oh, sweetie, you need to be mommy and daddy's age at minimum president. Yeah. Like 35 is like the youngest you could be. Well, she was pissed. And she oh, made no. that, that she would change the rules. And then I figured, because now the the whole conversation is spiraling, and I'm like, I don't know how to get out of this one now. So she explains that she will just change that rule. Oh, well, smart. then I had to explain to her. I was like, well, the job's kind of already taken. We have a president right now. His name is Joe. Uh, his name is Joe Biden. And she was like, why does Joe get to be the president? <laughs> and I don't get to. It was hysterical. But literally, like, she was throwing shade at Joe Biden because she wants to be president and why does he get to be president? And I tried to explain, like, I think he's kind of worked hard to get to this point and he seems capable enough and she was not having it. Oh my that gosh. is a glimmer into a day with Jess. Uh, very strong-willed, very independent. Uh, she will be your overlord someday, dear listeners. So prepare for the reign of Jessica Deneza sometime in the future. Uh, just prepare because she'll be the, the dictator you all new would come someday but for right now we're containing her in the Deneza household and keeping her at bay the best we can so we've been warned you've uh, been warned okay officially yes excellent strong independent woman uh Love as it. i aspire to be 
I'm I'm reading. I'm reading for her. <laughs> Amy's on board with our non-benevolent overlord. To yeah, take, I'm, take I'm the on board I'm interested to see your policies. Well, I'll have pink fans and rainbow cars. So Well, that's I'm into it. I'm into it. Okay, cool. I will let Jess know. She will look okay. favorably upon thee. Okay, good. Tell her that I am for her policies and I'm That's her I'm in her corner. <laughs> this is this is risky, but you might land yourself an advisory role oh, oh, like cool. on the board of directors or something. So Excellent. you know it's a risk, but I I appreciate what you're trying to do here. I will also mm -hmm. put in the good word for you by showing her a video of your dog. And then Perfect. I feel like that'll really like seal the deal, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. If you could please paint your car rainbow colored, then I think that you would pretty much have the job. Oh, cool. Sure. What cool. if I paint my husband's car rainbow? Sold. Done. Excellent. Done deal. Well, guys, uh, as I said, I don't know a better place than to wrap up with a uh, story about your future overlord, my child, my five-year-old Jess. So uh, it, Per our usual, I will remind you anyway, if you are watching this on the YouTubes, if you could please click the like button, the subscribe, the bell, all the youtube -y things, leave a comment down below if you so choose and share this with all of your friends because obviously everybody needs this podcast in their lives. And if you are on some sort of like app and listening to audio only, if you could rate us five stars in the app store, then that would be super rad too. But we will see you next time when we talk about histamine and mast cells i feel like we're going to need an actual like drum roll effect for the intro of that one because it's going to be a biggie so i look forward to that uh amy until next time i bid you adieu